episode 33 of The Build. We're in our Patrick Waugh era. Our Richard Sevigny era. Comedy comes in threes, so I would have liked the third guy to remember here. However, there are only two people who have ever worn the number 33 for the Montreal Canadiens, so that's where that joke lies. But I guess in a way that's somewhat fitting. Uh, two players have worn the number 33, and at the time of recording this, this is it's Saturday morning. Uh, the Canadians only have two wins in the last month. So, I mean, you know, that's that's that sure is something. It's not fun to watch, but it sure is something. Um, so I think that's where we'll start. We'll start with the, the current state of, of, of this team and sort of unpack my feelings about, um, you know, the the current, I think, seven win, seven game losing streak. Could be eight by the time you're listening to this. Um, as of recording this, here's where the Canadians rank since the beginning of December um, in, in a bunch of different categories. Um, these are at all strengths, so I'm not taking into account um, special teams unless I unless it is a special team stat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, goals for 38. That is fourth lowest in the NHL. Goals against 71. That is the highest in the NHL. Percentage of expected goals 40.28%. Second lowest. Only Anaheim is worse. Um, there are five on five power play goals four per 60. So essentially eliminating, you know, the, you know, teams who get more power play opportunities from the equation um, is 4.03. That's the third lowest in the NHL during that time. That means if the Canadians spent an entire game with a standard five on four power play, they would score four times, which is just like not a lot. Um, the only team to spend more time shorthanded since the beginning of December is the Calgary Flames. Montreal spent over 102 minutes shorthanded over the last month. And even if we eliminate the volume of penalty kills, the penalty kill still hasn't been good. The second highest goals against per 60 on the penalty kill with 13 and a half. The only team worse is Arizona. So all of these things are to say that the Canadians are nearly unwatchable right now. And the only reason I say nearly is because I am still watching them. So I can't say that they are entirely unwatchable. That would be a lie. Um, they, these current Canadians feel a lot like the Ducharme Canadians. Um, because aside from that top line, they kind of just are the Ducharme Canadians. They're the same, they're, they're the same roster. It reminds me of when um, the Atlanta Thrashers moved to Winnipeg. And, you know, everyone was stoked. The Jets are back. The New Jerseys look nice. I think they played the Canadians in their inaugural game. And then, you know, you still see, like, Nick Antropov and Andrew Ladd and, you know, Dustin Bufflin. Those are kind of nicer examples of, of what I'm about to say. But, like, after the confetti settled on the team being relocated to Winnipeg, you kind of just remembered that they were still the Atlanta Thrashers. <laughs> so, like, that's – that they had to shed an identity, right? This year's Canadians, especially the Canadians of, you know, December and now January um, – the, the rosters are very similar to last year's team. Although I would say Ducharme might might have killed to have the roster that the Canadians have right now because, like, this time last year, none of them were healthy. Um, but this Canadians team isn't particularly healthy at the moment either, especially with Monaghan, Matheson, and Gooley all out with injuries. Um, you know, so I, I do think that this is... They're sort of in their Atlanta Thrashers, Winnipeg Jets era where, you know... We're all happy that Marty's here. We're all happy that the Canadians are under new management. But at the same time, it's still the same roster as last year, essentially. They didn't they didn't overhaul the roster. Um so, you know, with with regards to like how we should feel about this, it's really tough to to feel anything positive about what's going on. I know the tank, you know, uh, uh, the tanking situation has improved, which is nice, right? Like Montreal is is doing a much better job solidifying their their you know high draft pick for twenty twenty three, um, but you know you start to see some rumblings about Marty Saint Louis, um, not that his job is in jeopardy or anything, but th that people are you know a little more critical of him now than they were at the start, and so I wanted to you know I I, 
I put that question through some thought. Is criticism of Marty St. Louis warranted? And I think the answer for, you know, you could plug in anybody in hockey in that, in that, that question. And the answer will always be in some regards, yes. Um, when it comes to Marty St. Louis, he's made it abundantly clear that he is in charge of the Canadians' power play. And that power play, as mentioned before, stinks. It's bad. He deserves criticism for how that power play has performed. Um, because it doesn't seem like it shares a whole lot of creativity. It doesn't seem like, you know, there's there's a whole lot of um, creative thought in getting them to execute in different ways. Um, even when they did, I think they scored, I can't even remember. I think it was a few games ago, they did score on a power play, but it was the same thing that we had seen, right? It was Nick Suzuki dropping out of the zone, coming back in with the puck, and he's looking shot, he's looking shot, and then it backs up the defenseman and it opens the slot for a cross-ice pass to Cole Caulfield. Uh, I think that was against Nashville, if I can remember correctly. All these games blur together because they all feel exactly the same. Um, And when that play works, it's great, but when it doesn't, 98% of the time, which is what it feels like, you know, you're just, you're, you're left wondering, like, why aren't they trying anything different? Why are they still trying to do this thing that, that only works every once in a while? Um, outside of the power play, just the general roster decisions, um, they are likely almost entirely his and they are, they are questionable on a lot of nights. That's not to say he has a, an embarrassment of riches, um, you know, of, of, of depth players, but it, it's not, it's not inspiring confidence when he's, you know, sitting a guy like Jonathan Kovacevic, who's been quietly very good for Montreal for a Chris Weidman or playing Joel Edmondson at all or putting Yoel Armia on the top line for a game only to send him back down the lineup the next game and to the press box shortly after that. Um, you know, those those lineup decisions are tough because, like, I don't think any of them really impact the result of the game, but I'd much rather see, you know, Kovacevic, uh, Kovacevic play instead of Chris Weidman. I'd much rather see the kids play. I'd much rather see someone on the top line who is going to, you know, play a big part on this team for a long time, as opposed to Yuel Armia, who I think is like, he's kind of hurtling towards a, a buyout in the summer, which would be, you know, it's, it'll be expensive for the Canadians, but I think it's one they might have to do just because he's not worth that, that cap hit at the moment. Um, you know, especially on, on defense, because, you know, Kovac, as I know, as I mentioned, Kovacevic is actually one of the Canadians stronger defensemen. Um, you know, I, I, I took, I took a look at expected goals per 60, um, among the Canadians defensemen and looking at the, just the regulars, um, you know, so essentially factoring out Justin Barron and I factored in Mike Matheson here. He's only played 10 games, but in those 10 games, he's played a big, a big role. Um, Kovacevic has the lowest goal, expected goals against per 60 among Canadians defensive with 2.64. Granted, I think he plays a lot of sheltered minutes because, you know, the, the Savards and the Ghoulies and the Edmondsons of the world, those guys are logging the big heavy minutes and playing against top competition. But Kovacevic is a very, you know, effective defenseman at the role that he's being given to play. Um, so it's very, it seems, it, it continues to be really odd to me that he's in a rotation for some reason. And I, I don't understand, like, because when Chris Weidman plays, he doesn't, Chris Weidman, you know, by, by comparison, has the highest expected goals against per 60 at 3.37. So, and by the way, you know, someone had mentioned, you know, Gooley's been on the ice for the most goals of Canadians defensemen. Yeah, he plays a lot. That's going to happen. If you just look at raw counts like that, especially with the Canadians goaltending being the way it is, it's going to be bad. But when you factor in, you know, uh, when you factor in, or I should say you factor out goaltending and you factor in how much time they're playing, um, you know, he's he's a middle-of-the-pack defenseman on this team, which is fine. He's a rookie. That's totally fine. Um, but all of that to say the roster decisions are, are really strange on a lot of nights and that's a decision Marty St. Louis has to make. And then the last, the last criticism that's on top of mind for me right now was leaving Jake Allen in for all nine goals against Washington, a mistake that 
Marty St. Louis is the only one responsible for, and a mistake that he admitted to and owned after the game and said he wouldn't do again, which is something I earnestly can't remember a Canadian's coach ever doing. Um, all I see is Michelle Terrian going that second guessing when he was asked about a coaching decision. So, like, if you're looking for growth at the head coach position, that's probably this is a good example of that, right? Like, Marty St. Louis said, like, I'm not going to leave a goalie in there for nine goals against again. Um, so that's that's a positive. It is something that like he needs to own though, and he did. So I, I'll give him I'll give him credit for that. All of these criticisms um, are not enough to warrant finding a replacement. For him, he's here for three years at least. I, I, I tend to believe that the Canadians look at him as the as the coach who's going to, you know, see them through their competitive window. Um, you know, they hired a bantam head coach to get behind the bench of an NHL team and coach the most storied franchise in the sport in their most challenging time. This this is the the results that we're seeing are always what was expected. The front office, like, they had to have known that, like, you know, in the, I talked, I, I used this term earlier in the show, like, many episodes ago, um, called the, the the range of potential outcomes. With Marty St. Louis, the range of potential outcomes was always um, pretty narrow for this season, right? For the Canadians in general, the, the range of potential outcomes was rather small. This team wasn't going to be a playoff team. This team wasn't going to be a bubble team barely on the outside. This team was always going to be in the bottom five, six, or seven in the league, um, you know, depending on how, how, you know, how bad things really got. So I don't think that the Canadians are looking at this and going, ah, Marty doesn't know what he's doing. We have to get him out of here. I think that they, I think they know that the roster that's in front of him is garbage. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's more important that he's there to mentor the, the younger players and get them to a point where when the team is ready to be competitive, they've learned all of these lessons already and they can move forward. Um, I I do need everyone to forget that the Canadians of October existed. <laughs> they, they were punching above their weight. And if you listen to this show, I was very clear about it. I was not worried about the tank at all because there were, there were a lot of warning signs that this team was not as good as that stretch showed. It doesn't mean that that stretch wasn't fun. You're allowed to enjoy that, right? Like, but it doesn't mean that that like that this you know there were some people saying that this was a playoff team after watching them in October, where they were like one game over 500. There was never a reality. Um, and I know everyone was clowning on Jay Fresh for saying that what Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield and the Canadians in general were doing was unsustainable. But it turns out what the Habs were doing with regards to Suzuki and Caulfield was entirely unsustainable. They have not scored at the rate that they did at the beginning of the season. Cole Caulfield's been picking it back up as of late, right? Like We've seen him. Um, we saw him have two goals against Washington. He had one against Nashville. He's still on pace for, I think, over 40 goals, which would be really, really cool. That's something that I'm pulling for, um, regardless of result of game. I think everyone's pulling for that. Um, so, you know, the Canadians of October, they didn't exist. Let's let's move them out of our collective consciousness and, and look at the team that played in late November, December, and January. It was bad. Um Early on, I know there were some thoughts that the Canadians needed to trade a goalie. I think doing so now would make them an improved hockey team, which should not be the goal, right? Because since the beginning of December, Montreal's second last in save percentage at 76.9. Goaltending is not only not keeping them in games, it's letting games get out of hand really quick. I mean, you know, the, the Ranger game, I think Allen gave up three. I think it was 3-1 and then an empty netter. I, I mean, I... I didn't like a single goal that he gave up. I know the Kreider one was a breakaway, but he just completely misread the breakaway. And then the, the, the next two were just pucks that were floated in. You know, they weren't deflections. They just kind of floated in from the point. Those are goals that, like, can't happen to an NHL team. Thankfully, the Canadians aren't trying to be an NHL team this year, so it doesn't really matter. But I don't think trading a goaltender is, is on the table at the moment, unless, you know, someone offers you know, a, a lot of premium futures for Jake Allen. Um, I think the Canadians would entertain that because I think they could survive with Montembeau for the rest of the year and then find another goalie in the offseason if they needed to. But right now, I don't think trading a goaltender 
is something that the tank is relying on. So the can the Canadians can't score, they can't defend, the power play stinks, they're losing a ton. Just about the only thing that they had going for them outside of Caulfield scoring was being the only team in the NHL to not surrender a shorthanded goal, which of course happened against the Rangers on Thursday. So now the Canadians are just definitely having no fun. Um, I'm not going to talk about losing cultures because I've done that enough, and I don't think that's the sort of thing that happens in a season or two. Like if we're saying that last year was a big losing season, um, which it was, although the second the back half of the season was overwhelmingly positive. Um, because you can have positive moments within losing seasons if you have the right people involved, which Marty St. Louis definitely was. Um, but I, I'm not, you know, I've talked about losing cultures a lot. I've gotten into discussions on Twitter about it. I'm not overly concerned about that happening, happening to the Canadians because the people who seem the most impacted by the losing are the veterans who are not going to be here. Um, and that's, you know, generally speaking with, with teams who lose a lot, that's, that's what seems to happen. Remember Buffalo a few years ago when they still had, um, Ryan O'Reilly and he said he kind of fell out of love with the game, right? Like the losing hit him the most, because I think as you get older, you start to see the clock ticking on your career and you only have so much time to make an impact and win a Stanley cup. The young guys, I think they kind of know they're going to be here a while. So it doesn't bother them. Suzuki, it's, it's. It's weighing on him because, you know, that, I mean, the C on his chest might as well be made of gold because it's, 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 it's hard for him right now. And I don't, and I, that was always, that was always part of the conversation with whether or not Suzuki should be captain. I think ultimately he'll be fine. Um, But, you know, that was something that was weighed in and I think it'll make him, it'll make him a better player coming out of it. Um, And because those, those older guys are, are having such a tough time, I think they're playing worse because of it particularly Edmondson and Gallagher um it really they they do not um they do not hide it well they look very upset um and they're playing like they're upset and by that I mean they're playing like ass um and we'll talk more about that later but those guys playing poorly makes it even harder to determine how the young guys are playing um I don't think the young guys especially like Gooley um you know the brand new ones Jack I Kovacevic um you know Caulfield, because that, that kid's always smiling. I don't think anything bothers him. I, I don't think right now it's 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 on them, right? Like I think I think right now the the older guys are feeling this the worst, um, which just is what it is. And maybe it just you know because I know Gallagher has a no trade clause. If anybody trades for Gallagher, I'd be surprised. Edmondson has a no trade clause, I believe, a modified one. It probably just makes them more apt to waive it if the Canadians want to move them. Um, all of this to say that the results we're seeing, um, the L's on the calendar, those were always planned for the season. They're baked into the pie. Um, Hughes and Gorton are not managing this team to win every night. Marty St. Louis is trying to do that, and I think that's why he looks miserable a lot of the time. And, you know, why, you know, it just seems like he's out of answers because the roster doesn't have a lot of answers for him. Um, I don't think that any of this has an impact on his employment with the Canadians or anything like that. They they knew that this was happening. The the Canadians front office knew that this was the path this team was going to take this season, or at least, you know, they had prepared for this happening. You know, not to say that they they wanted to tank this year, although they built a pretty good roster for tanking. I, I think they're perfectly comfortable with the situation that they're in. They'll see this through to the end because holy cow, Connor Bedard, <laughs> um, Montreal, according to Mika Blake McCurry at ineffective math on Twitter. If you don't follow him, I don't know what you're doing. He's fantastic. Um, he has a chance of getting the first overall pick chart. Um, and I believe what this does is it factors in the team's point projections, which if you follow Mika, you see just about every day. I think he tweets them out. Um, it factors in those point projections with lottery odds and trade results. And the last one is key. Um, as of recording, uh, the Canadians have the fourth highest lottery odds according to Mika's model. Now, you might be looking at Tankathon and be like, well, how is that? How did he come to that realization? This is because the Habs point projections have been dropping, and Florida's have been dropping as well, although Florida won on Friday night. Um, Mika has Florida at just a 17% chance to make the playoffs. It's probably improved a little bit since they won on Friday. Um, but because of those two factors, Montreal being bad, Florida being bad, their, their, their chances to win that pick get, get combined together. <clears throat> so it's 
it's entirely possible that we see Montreal get into a really good position with their own pick, and then Florida falls off again in the back half of the season, and they've got two really good picks. And because the chances, you know, your, your lottery odds are just determined by how many number combinations you own, um, you can just add Montreal and, and Florida's odds together, and that's what the Canadians' odds will be. Um, so hopefully this pain comes with a purpose. Um, Bedard is obviously the big prize in all of this. He, he is just, he's an otherworldly player. Um, I'm not going to, you know, it'll be disappointing if the Canadians don't win the first overall pick just because of what Bedard already is and how he, he, if he were to come to the Canadians, it would drastically change the Canadians potential window for contention. Like, I think if, if Montreal gets Bedard next year, I'm not saying they're a playoff team the next year, but I think. I mean, they're, just, they're probably much, much better. And then maybe the season after that, we're looking at playoffs. Um, by not getting Bedard, it doesn't mean the Habs rebuild is doomed. So let's, I'm going to put that up plainly now, months before the draft lottery occurs, months before the draft occurs. It just means that they're going to get a different player and the way the Canadians try to build their winner will look different. If Montreal's anywhere within that top five, there are there are very good players there. Um, you know, watching this World Junior, I mean, I know the it seems like the the stock on Adam Fantilli has fallen dramatically after his play at the World Juniors. But as I'll talk about later on, it's a it's a short tournament. If you don't fit in, you don't fit in. It's he played seven games. Like it's not like you know we saw him suck for twenty five. Like he he got into a tournament and just couldn't find his groove. It's not the end of the world, but. Montreal is going to get a good player in this year's draft with their own pick. They're, I, I, I think I still I feel like they're going to try to add at least one more first round pick. Maybe they, you know, if if Montreal has their high pick and Florida's is somewhere in the 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 mid teens, and you get one from a playoff team, maybe you're taking that playoff team one and the mid teens one, and you're trading them up to get back into the top ten somehow. Um, you know, there. Are, the lottery is important. It's important to building a team. It is not the end-all be-all of, of building a team, I don't think. And I, I don't think that, you know, a lot of teams believe that. Um, so, Bedard would be really cool, though. So, I'll leave that there. Um, let's talk about Yuri Slavkovsky. Speaking of winning lotteries. Um, when the Canadians decided not to send Slavkovsky to the World Juniors, I wasn't really all that shocked. I was pretty indifferent to it. Um on the show, I mentioned that I was indifferent to it. That if he went, it would have been cool. If not, whatever. It's not the end of the world. Selfishly, it would have been cool to see him play in a tournament that I think he could dominate in. But the Canadians didn't see it that way. Um, the one thing that, that, that's that been bugging me is the they should have sent him for his development argument. And I don't think it has a ton of substance to it. We're talking about a seven-game tournament. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think seven games, good or bad, at an international tournament that is... To be honest, you would hope it's below Slavkovsky's um, acumen at this point. I don't think that was ever going to have much of an impact on his career arc. I think fans wanted to see him, which is a completely reasonable desire for fans to have. Like, we want to see him play fun hockey. And the World Juniors is fun hockey. It is. It's it's kind of a sugar high. Like, it's, it's a lot of goals and a lot of back and forth. Um, but... That's not an unreasonable thing for fans to want. However, hiding it as, you know, well, I think it would be best for his development. I don't think that anybody is it, it believes that that's true. Um, because if that was true, Victor Mete would have come back from the World Juniors that one year when Cheryl sent him a much better player, and he wasn't. He went to that tournament and played in it, and he wasn't a good player. Um, you know, there are instances of NHL players going to the World Juniors and not having you know, blowout performances. Shane Wright, who I'll talk about in a little bit, I thought he was fine. He won the gold medal as the captain, so it's fine. But it was sort of underwhelming considering, like, you know, what other players on his team were doing. Um, Again, Shane Wright hasn't played a lot this year, which I think factors into that. Um, But back to Slavkowski, the Canadians seem convinced that the best possible development path for him involves playing with and being around the Canadians. Because if that wasn't the case, he would have been sent to Laval a long time ago, right? 
He still might go to Laval at some point, but the Canadians truly believe, if they believe that the grass was greener somewhere else, they would have had plenty of opportunities and reasons to send him to that place wherever it might be. And even if it was Laval, the Canadians are still in command of his development. So it's not like if they send him to Laval, they're just not paying attention to him for the rest of the year. Um, at the World Juniors, if they were to send him to junior hockey in Canada, which I know was an option, but they didn't want it. If they would have sent him back to Finland, which is an option that I don't think they wanted, obviously, because they didn't do it. If they did any of those, they would have no, they wouldn't have direct control over his development. They would be at the whim of a head coach who was employed by them to put him in situations that they'd like to see him play in. Um, they have, they have, Montreal has invested an impossibly valuable piece of draft capital in this player, a piece that teams don't get often. And if Montreal were to get again this upcoming draft in 2023, they would be among the rare ones. Um, you know, it's it's really just us, New Jersey. It would be us, New Jersey, and, and Edmonton, really. Um, they want to see this development through to the end on their own. Whether or not that works remains to be seen. However, it's sort of a double-edged sword. If it does work, we're talking about how great the Canadians are at developing prospects now. If they aren't, if it doesn't work, we're looking at it and going, they insisted on being on top of this kid the entire time, and it didn't work out. They are solely responsible for how this turned out. Like I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of connections being made to Shane Wright and his availability to play in this tournament. Um, I don't know how comparable the two situations are. Um, for one, Wright, Shane Wright can't go to the AHL under a normal, you know, uh, transaction he did as a conditioning stint because the Kraken didn't want to didn't play him for a long time they were allowed to send him to the AHL for two weeks he got called back up he played against Montreal scored and then he went to Team Canada so he played let's see he played six no he played seven games in the NHL before being sent down to the Coachella Firebirds of the AHL he plays there for two weeks he comes up he plays Montreal, scores his big goal, feels good. They immediately send him to Team Canada's training camp. And once that tournament ends, they're sending him back to the OHL. So he ends his NHL season at eight games, meaning his the clock on his his uh, ELC hasn't started yet. Like he'll he'll still have three years on his entry level deal coming into next season. Um, the Kraken, for some reason, didn't want to play him in the OHL for the whole season. I don't really understand why, but they played the clock well, right? Like, they waited it out as long as they could before making a choice. I wonder if they just didn't want him playing in the OHL all season because it's a league that he very clearly is done with. Um, but at any rate, like, why would you send him there now? Like, I, it is what it is. It's, he's not, not my circus, not my monkeys. It doesn't matter. There were a lot of comments about the Kraken ruining Wright's development too, but I I, I think they've handled it fine. Um, the one argument you can make is that he should be playing games. Since being drafted, he's only played in 20 between Seattle, Coachella, and Team Canada. Um, Slavkovsky's played in 34 NHL games this year, and they'd probably be on about the same pace points-wise if Wright had played all year. Slavkovsky has 10 in 34. Wright has two points in eight games. So like they're, they're, they would be right on pace with each other. Um, but all of this to say they're different players in different situations and they have different rules governing where they're allowed to play based on where they're from. Um, the main story at the moment was Slavkovsky's development. I did want to set all that up just to, to, to then get into, you know, the big issue is Slavkovsky playing on the fourth line. Um, early in December, things looked like they were progressing pretty nicely for Slavkovsky. The first seven games in, De in December, he picked up five points. He was on a bit of a hot streak. He was playing on a really effective line with Sean Monahan down the middle and and uh, Josh Anderson opposite him. Then Monahan went down and things changed. There was kind of a it was they were having a hard time finding where to put him. Um, there was a stretch of games where Marty would start him on the second or third line, and by the third period he was on the fourth line. Usually when the team was behind and and St. Louis wanted a Hoffman or a Dodonov higher up in the lineup to try to get a scoring opportunity. Um, 
there seems to be this feeling throughout the fan base that Marty doesn't like Slavkovsky, and I just personally don't see that or believe that. Um, Slavkovsky has a tendency to think that he can do everything himself. His flashiest moments are where he's trying to deke through someone, but I think his smartest moments and his best moments are down low when he's making passes to dangerous spots on the ice, when he's using his teammates to find opportunities. Um, part of the reason Slavkovsky's draft stock rose so late in the you know the draft cycle um, was because of his performance in big moments and big games when they're on the line. At this stage in career and in his career, that probably does him more harm than good. Um, you know, when he was playing at the Olympics and it's sort of house money, it, it's cool to see in, in a short tournament like that. It's cool to see that play out, right? It's cool to see one guy just say, I'm going to put the team on, on my back. We're going to win gold. I'm winning the MVP. Um, but when it comes to this league, I don't think it's, it's, it's a smart thing for him to play that way. He's playing in a league that I don't think he fully understands just yet, which is entirely reasonable. It's been 34 games. And he has not played on an ice surface this this size until this point. Um, and I think when he tries to do too much, he makes mistakes. Um, take the shorthanded goal that the Rangers scored as an example. Um, Slavkowski comes out on the second wave of the power play. He makes some good reads, made some good passes. Even the ones that didn't connect, they were at least good ideas. You could see you could see the thought process there. Um, Dodonov gets a shot from the slot. The crowd starts to feel it. The puck finds its way back to Slavkovsky. He takes it down the right half wall. And then he floats a backhand pass, like, I don't know, like a saucer pass that just went probably 10 feet in the air, back to Arbor Jackai at the point. But Chris Crowder picks it off. He goes in and scores. Um, that's a learning moment for Slavkovsky. It's, it's one... He only gets to learn if they trust him enough to put him on the power play, which they do. But it's an example of how a player like Slavkovsky can get in his own way. Um, and I think that's like Marty's got to talk. And Marty does talk to him about that. And he, I think he, he's always very positive about Slavkovsky when he speaks about him. It's not like he's in the media dragging him. You know, he's, he just keeps mentioning these are learning experiences. He's going to learn from this. He's a very talented player. We want him to be the best player. We're going to continue to work with him. That's all you can really hope for from a head coach. Um, would I play Slavkovsky on the fourth line? No. But Marty, you know, seems to think it's important to get guys like Dodonov and Druin and Armia going. Not because St. Louis cares about trade value, but because if they if the vets can start playing, they can help out the kids a little bit. It's going to take some of the pressure off of the Caulfields and Suzuki's and Docs. Um when I first started this show, one of the promises I made to myself and to anyone listening is that I would not hold this iteration of Canadians management accountable for the sins of the past iterations of Canadians management. That means leaving the development woes of Alex Galchenyuk and Jesperi Kotkaniemi and everybody else in the past pushing those away. Yes, those are examples of bat of how to not properly develop a prospect. But the people in charge now had nothing to do with those. I know, and this is going to get very psychological, I, I know that to make sense of the world around us, our brains make connections to familiar things, and they make leaps in judgment so that we feel like we understand what's going on. So it's no surprise to, to it's no surprise that people think this is Kotkaniemi all over again. Big European forward, drafted high, team doesn't know what they're doing with him. I don't think that's fair to this front office. And more importantly, I kind of don't think that's fair to Slavkovsky. His career is 34 games old, and there are some teetering on calling him a bust already. Like, he has not been given a fair shake as far as determining what his overall output is. Um, let me read you a stat line. 55 games, 3 goals, 4 assists, 7 points. Would you take that player over Uri Slavkovsky, who I think is 34 games into his career and he has 10 points? It's close, but if you're just looking at the stats, you probably think that the first guy is not very good. That's Joe Thornton. That's Joe Thornton's rookie season. I'm not saying Slavkovsky is the next Joe Thornton. I'm more so saying that rookie seasons do not make or break a player. Um, give Slavkovsky time. He's not Kotkaniemi. Gordon and Hughes are not Mark Bergman. Adam Nicholas and Mary Philippe Lang 
and Vinny the Cavalier are all here. And as a note, on Friday's practice, Slavkovsky is on the second line again with Dvorak and Anderson. So there's that. All right, let's talk about some injuries. Um, Gouli is out about two months. That's a big one. He had Sasha Barkov fall on him in the, the towards the end of the Panthers game. It didn't look good. Our Twitter doctor smarter than me who could tell you what happened. I just know that legs don't bend that way. Um, the good news is Savard is back, and I thought he played well against New York. The Nashville game was rough, but that was his first game in a month. And, you know, in those numbers that I mentioned earlier um, regarding defensemen, um, Savard is very good. He's third on the team in expected goals against per 60 at 2.77. So he, you know, as much, I think I, I had this conversation on Twitter. I, I think we're a little too hard on Savard. I think he plays a lot of really hard minutes and does particularly well. So it's kind of nice to have him back. I'm looking forward to seeing how he stabilizes the defense and hopefully allows them to give up six goals instead of nine. Um, with Gouley, you just hope that the knee doesn't become a chronic thing. That's that's all you can really hope for. The Canadians seem to be treating it um, with an appropriate amount of care. What else can you do? Um, Gallagher is also out again. Same lower body injury that he just recovered from. He didn't even look good coming back off that first injury. He's out about two weeks. I wonder if... I'm, I, like I, It's tough because I, I just... It's very obvious that Mark Bergevin gave Gallagher a contract for what he had done instead of what was to come. And that's, it's, it's, you know, exhibit 45 of, you know, Mark Bergevin not leaving this team in a, in a good spot. Um, also out two weeks are Monaghan and Matheson, both with lower body injuries. I think they're both skating. I know Monaghan was, um, ahead of practice skating and shooting. So, um, Hopefully we get some bodies back soon. It's 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 hard to evaluate this team at the moment because, you know, there's so many people not pulling their weight. Getting guys healthy, not for the not for the, you know, making the team better aspect of this, but giving Marty St. Louis a choice in who he plays every night. Like there were there was a long stretch of time um when Gallagher was out, when Monaghan was out, that he had no choices at forward. It was the Canadians were just playing whoever they had healthy. Um, you know, it'll be help, helpful to get bodies back so that, like, the guys who aren't playing well can sit. Right now, I don't think Marty St. Louis has that luxury. Um, and again, that blue line is really banged up. Injuries are part of every season. The Canadians have been hit particularly hard by them over the last two years. I want to say this about Caden Gooley, and I read this, you know, you can see this in the stats. Everyone's saying, well, they lost their number one defenseman. I know Gooley's impact on this team is massive. I don't think he's the Canadians' number one defenseman right now, and I don't think the Canadians have a number one defenseman right now. Probably Matheson when he's healthy, but on a competitive team as a rookie, Gooley is a nice middle-pairing defenseman, and I think... That's kind of what he is now anyway. Like, like if you look at the numbers, he's, he's, you know, a 3-4 guy. I think the ceiling is higher for him than I thought it was after watching him this year. And I, I, like, I don't think this is the high watermark for Caden Gooley. We're going to see him progress. Um, the Canadians will obviously miss him while, while he's out. I'm not saying, like, oh, he's a bum. We won't miss him anyway. But I do feel like it needed to be said that, like, it's not that he's, he's, he's valuable, but... To call him our number one defenseman at the moment, I think, would be premature. Um, okay, two questions from listeners. First from Doug Saylor at LestatBC. Uh, will Caulfield sign for more than Suzuki? And are you worried about Cole being offersheeted? Uh, first on the contract, I think Cole's probably ends up around an 8x8 contract, so a little bit more than Suzuki. Um, that's if they go the eight-year route, which I, I feel like is the likeliest option because you kind of know what he is already. Um, I think you regret it if you bridge him and, you know, in those two or three years on the bridge deal, he just makes a way more expensive contract for himself. Uh, as for the offer sheet, I don't really think it's much of a possibility. Sure. It could happen. It's legal, right? Cause he's played, he's played enough games. Um, but the Canadians would likely match whatever came in for him. And I think most teams are aware of that. Um, pending other moves, the Canadians have about $13 million in cap space next season. So they'll have the money to pay him. 
Um, I, unless a team really wants to screw over the Canadians for some reason, I, I just I wouldn't worry about it. Um, thanks for the question, though, uh, Doug. I really appreciate it. And last one from Emmanuel at I the Habs guy. Who gets traded between now and the deadline? Is it weird that I don't think anyone on this roster is a sure thing to be traded? Um, obviously, trades will happen, right? Like, you know, every year at the trade deadline, I think every team makes some kind of move with, you know, save a few of them who just decide not to do anything that day. Um, but I look up and down the roster, and I don't know, like, I don't know that anyone's like a 100%, you know, locked in, going to be traded player. We hope a lot of guys get dealt, but like, even if Montreal retains half of the remaining salary on Druin's deal this year, what are you trading for Jonathan Druin? He's not been good. Mike Hoffman, like, yeah, he's 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 playing well, but he's also got another year left at four and a half million dollars. Is someone taking that on? That seems like a deal that gets done next year. Um. Or Armia, who I think he's got three years left, but it might as well be a hundred. Um, of the pure rentals, Monahan is the most valuable, and I, he's probably the one I feel most likely that they're going to trade. But there are, there's always been this since he came, since he was traded to Montreal. There's been this idea that Montreal's going to want to extend him. Given that, yes, he's looked great, but he's also gotten hurt again, I don't know how reasonable that is to extend a player who had injury history. The entire concept of bringing him in was, let's see if he can, if he can, you know, show teams that he's going to be healthy long term, not just for this year, but, you know, in the hopes of getting a long term contract after this season. Um, I've loved Monaghan when, when he's been healthy, but like, he hasn't been healthy the whole time. He's been out a while now. Um, you hope Edmondson gets dealt, given the price tag that the Habs have on him. According to Chris Johnson, the asking price is a first and a prospect. So he's asking for Sherratt part two. And seemingly, the more Edmondson plays, the worse he looks. And I'll get to that in a little bit. So I don't know for sure that someone ponies up for Edmondson. I really hope somebody does. And I think, you know, up front... You know, as far as rentals go, Monaghan is probably the most likely to be dealt. As far as non-rentals, so players who have term past this season, I feel like it's got to be Edmondson. Because as much as, like, fans and people who look at, you know, underlying metrics watch this guy and just don't understand what people see in him, the Ken Hollands of the world will pay up for that. Um, So... Short answer, everyone or also maybe no one. It's the NHL and the trade deadline is almost always disappointing. I just hope they don't get sentimental about guys and decide to keep people. And I don't think that's how Ken Hughes operates. Um, like he, he in the short time that he was in Montreal, he really did like um, Arturi Lekkinen. And, you know, he was certain he wasn't going to trade Arturi Lekkinen until um, Colorado increased their offer just before the trade deadline. Um, so I don't, while that's a fear that you have just generally about hockey is that guys get sentimental about their guys. I don't necessarily think that that's something that I, I am all that worried about with Kent Hughes, but it will be interesting to see, you know, this is his first full season as general manager. How does he handle this deadline? It'll be interesting. Um, all right. <clears throat> Two more segments. We're sending people back to the drawing board. Um, this week. It's just one, and it's someone who has been here before and will probably be here until he is gone, and that is Joel Edmondson. Against Nashville and the Rangers, but particularly Nashville, he was abysmal. On just about every defensive shift, he loses he loses his man that he's supposed to cover. Next time you're watching Joel Edmondson, <clears throat> whether that's Saturday night or next week or whatever, follow him around the zone when he's defending the entry in that Nashville game on the, I think it was the play that it was Cody Glass's second goal where he deflected it. They came in and Edmondson bumps him a little bit. He gives him a little cross check. Cause that's his, that's a special move. You know, he just, he, Oh, I got to throw in a cross check. And then he just lets glass skate in around behind him 
and go directly to the net unbothered. Like, he's Edmondson's supposed to be a defenseman that logs a lot of minutes and clears the front of the net and is mean and nasty to people, but he only ever seems to be really mean and nasty after the whistle, which is kind of the hallmark for that kind of defenseman, the big and nasty guys. They don't do anything during the play. Um, It's becoming pretty clear now, if it wasn't clear already, which it should have been, that he was being buoyed by strong teammates, Jeff Petrie, namely him. And now that he has to carry a pairing with a younger player or a, you know, a player not to the level of play of Jeff, of a Jeff Petrie, he's just a disaster. Quite honestly, he he is the most frustrated I've been with a player all season. And I know that like there's a guy I'm going to talk about in a little bit who had who had a really hard time scoring this season. And there are other frustrating players. I know people like to blame you know, Mike Hoffman and, and Jonathan Druin for stuff. I don't find them anywhere near as frustrating as Joel Edmondson, who's supposed to have like this Stanley Cup pedigree. He's just brutal. So speaking of one of those players who couldn't score, he's actually one of our building blocks this week, and that's Yoel Armia. Um, the tale of two Joels slash Yoels, I should say. Um, I won't lie to you and say he had a great game against the Rangers. But he did finally score a damn goal, and that's worthy of some some celebration. Um, that's what this whole section is about, building blocks. It's it's something that Yoel Armia might be able to build on moving forward. And, like, right after that goal, I think in, like, the next shift or the shift after that, he hit the post. Like, he goal scorers, you know, not to say that he's a goal scorer, but when you score goals in the NHL, they tend to come in bunches. I don't know why that is, but... You know, it wouldn't surprise me if on Saturday he he pots another one against St. Louis and maybe he gets on a little bit of a roll. I'm hoping he can continue to build on that goal, not just for a, you know, recoup of trade value for the Canadians, but to start in, for him to start enjoying hockey again. He's looked really, really miserable, and he's had a really tough stretch. And when he scored that goal, he fucking smiled, and it was really important. All right, that's, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to fly off the handle. That's fine. Um... Two more players are building blocks this week. Um, I had a friend ask me why I was watching the Canadians this year, and other than doing my show, my answer was the same answer I've given on this show. I want to see young players take steps in the right direction. Arbor Jacki has started to do that. I'm not talking about his defensive acumen or his offensive touches or anything like that, um, although I do think he's a little bit better with the puck than we give him credit for. He's not an elite defenseman. He's not, you know... I think he's still a bottom pairing NHL defenseman at the end of the day. But the biggest knock on Arbor Jacki in his very early career is that he takes way too many penalties. He currently leads the league in penalty minutes with 67, which is why I considered a really nice step in the right direction that he went five straight games without taking a penalty, not one minor penalty that entire time. And he almost made it six before he took one in the third period. He took a slashing penalty against New York in the third period. Um, Think about how undisciplined you have to be where you could go five, almost six games without a penalty and you're still in the lead in the league in penalty minutes. Um, but that's not what this section is about. This section is about him doing a, a good job for a little while staying out of the penalty box because ultimately, and I know this is a really complicated concept, the less time he spends in the box is more time he spends on the ice learning how to play in the NHL. So good for Arbor Jack. I, I know that that's something that the Canadians talk to him about. He's taking too many penalties. I know a lot of those are fights, but a lot of them are not. A lot of them are minor penalties. Um, and he's trying to take that out of his game very early on. So, you know, kudos to him. All right. Last, um, last building block of the week. Um, that's funny. I, I, the, the team couldn't be worse and I found more good things to talk about than bad. Maybe it's just cause I didn't want to talk about how bad the power play is again. But, um, anyway, the third building block, I am not a prospect expert by any stretch of the imagination, but it was impossible to not notice Joshua Hua when he was on the ice in the elimination and medal rounds of the world juniors. He had four points against the Americans, which, you know, as a Canadian, like playing against the Americans, that's, that's gotta be you know, 
if you show up for that game, like you're you're a household name. I remember a bunch of people, including myself, tweeted after he potted the empty netter um, that this was the Joshua Waugh game. And that's how people that's how I'll remember that World Junior anyway, was that that was the Joshua Waugh game. Um, and after that four point game, he followed it up with the the golden assist on the game winner in overtime against Chechia. I know we get told not to get too excited about late round prospects, especially those who come out of the the uh, QMJHL. But this was an exciting tournament for him. Um, in international spotlight, he played some very effective hockey. Now he played on a line with a very dynamic player in Connor Bedard. And once again, it's just a seven game tournament. But it's still nice to see. I'm not. I'm. It's not like tipping the needle, you know, one way or the other for for him, for me. But it, it, you know, I think I think people would um, generally agree with the idea that it's nicer to see prospects play well than bad, um, and that's what this section is about. I'm not, I, I don't think that this is, you know, Joshua Waz coming out party. Maybe it is, but I, 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 it's possible that it's not. We need to see more. So we started the show talking about a Wa, and we will end the show talking about a Hua. Uh, so thanks for listening. That's all I've got. I hope you enjoyed this show. I hope you enjoyed your holidays and are looking forward to whatever you have to look forward to in the year of 2023. Um, If you're looking forward to watching Game Over, I will be on there, um, believe it or not, this week against the Nashville Predators. I will be on after the Canadians honor P.K. Subban, which should be a lot of fun. Um, We'll probably talk about P.K. a whole lot, Um, which if that's your sort of thing, come join. It'll be a good time. Um, Subscribe to them on YouTube. SDPN, subscribe to Locked on Canadians. Those guys are my buds too. Um, and if you like this show, share it somewhere. Review it on Apple. Leave comments on Spotify, which you can do now. Um, sharing the show, doing those things is the best way for me to grow the show. It's the best way for me to um, get this show out to new people. Um, I say this all the time. You vote with your wallet. You vote with your time. Um, so I'm thankful that you decided to spend some time with me, and I hope you continue to do so. All right. The music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is Inside by Fred Mugg. Check the link in the description to head over to his Bandcamp page to check out the rest of his stuff. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye.